Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute. And I want to first give a special thanks to our co-host for this monthly event. Heritage Today is represented by Laura Truman, who is the Director of, Director of Strategic Operations for Heritage. And I want to thank each of you for joining us today. Those of you here in Washington, those of you watching on C-SPAN all over America and all over the world, I want to welcome you to this special December edition of the Conservative Women's Network. As most of you know, CWN usually features top women speakers in the conservative movement. But every December, it is our tradition to feature a special gentleman speaker. And this year, we're so pleased to have Dave, David Bratt, the new United States Congressman from Virginia. <laughs> As many of you know, Congressman Bratt defeated former Majority Leader Eric Cantor in the primary last summer for Virginia's 7th Congressional District. He was sworn in last month, and he'll be bringing some much-needed economic expertise to the national policy discussions. Congressman Bratt is a product of the rural Midwest and has long believed in the values of faith, family, and a strong work ethic. He obtained a Master's in Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary and then earned a PhD in economics from American University. In 1996, he began teaching economics and ethics at Virginia's Randolph-Macon College, where he chaired the economics and business department for six years. He served the Commonwealth of Virginia in a number of capacities also. He served two governors on the Joint Advisory Board of Economists and also served on the Richmond Metropolitan Authority and the Great Aspirations Scholarship Program. His peers elected him as president of the Virginia Association of Economists, and the governor also appointed him to the Virginia Board of Accountancy. A man of deep faith, Dave attends St. Mary's Catholic Church with his wife, Laura, and his two children. Please join me in welcoming Congressman David Brown. Well, thank you all very much for having me. That was a nice introduction. You saved, saved my throat a little bit. You all know we've had an exciting uh, week. Do you all know that? You all been following the news. It's good. So we had. I'll get to that uh, after I frame uh, some of my biography and some of the background to how I got where I am. So I'll just kind of break it up into a few pieces, my biography and then kind of my uh, run for office and then where we are at today with uh, Republicans and the votes that are coming up. Uh, that just occurred yesterday and, and in the week prior. But uh, thank you all very much for having me. It's an honor to be here with you at Heritage. I've been a longtime follower of Heritage, and uh, it's, it's great to be with you all today. Uh, so first of all, uh, my biography is very well captured there, and I kind of usually started my stump speeches over the last 10 months. Try that sometime, right? 10 months of campaigning. So 10 months stump speeches, and I basically opened up and I said, how would you like to send someone to Congress uh, to bring both economics and ethics, right, up to D.C. And uh, that combination of economics and ethics hits a nerve in the country right now because people do get a sense uh, that we're on the wrong track. When we knock doors, that's about all you had to say, right? Are we on the right track? Are we on the wrong track? And every household uh, in the 7th District, uh, we're off track. And so I've, I've combined those two themes uh, over a lifetime. I went to Hope College in Holland, Michigan, and then uh, went to work at Arthur Anderson in Detroit and Chicago for a little bit in business. And then felt the call, went to seminary. I was going to teach systematic theology. 
And, uh, you know, a large part of that is ethics kind of fits in there philosophically. And that was my goal. And then uh, while I was in seminary, I went to Princeton Seminary and came down here to Wesley Seminary for a uh, political semester. And there was a guy writing on economics and ethics, right, in one book. And that it's not a punchline, right? And so I got very interested in that. And a lot of seminary students were interested in social justice. And sometimes that happens on the left, right? And that, that term justice is, is a tricky one. Right? It's got a long pedigree, but it's been uh, a little shaped more recently to end up kind of in the leftist tradition or the leftist uh, moral uh, descriptions lately. And I think it has a longer pedigree that kind of fits in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And so I'm very interested in exploring that, and I've, I've taught it over the last 19 years. And so I pursued those themes uh, in, in seminary and then went on uh, from Wesley, you know, butts right up to American University. So I said, hey, I want to pursue these even further through a PhD in economics. And American was a great fit because you get the city all around. You can go to interesting talks by world-class people across the board every night. And so pursued that uh, through my PhD. And then I was lucky enough to apply and find a great job down in uh, Richmond, Virginia, in Ashland. We call it the center of the universe. Actually, it's a very small little town in Hanover, which is, was a county very friendly to me. But I've been there for the past 19 years. This would have been my 19th year teaching economics and ethics. So I was the chair of the econ and business department, but I, I also chaired the ethics minor for several years. John Allison, a friend over at Cato, uh, helped me uh, build a program in the moral foundations of capitalism. And so that kind of puts the two together uh, in, in the same way. And then I got a chance to work in a general assembly for about the last eight or nine years in Virginia politics, got to know a lot of how the political system works. And then uh, just wasn't happy with some of the things that were going down in my area in the seventh district. So put my hat in and, and the people thought it was good to send an economist up to DC. And so that in short is kind of the biography and, and uh, who I am and uh, why I ran. But I'll get a little more specific now. When I ran, I ran on the Virginia Republican creed. How many Virginians in here? Oh, really? Oh, very good. That's, how many of you know the Re Virginia Republican creed? Really? Very good. <laughs> it's not perfect, but it's good. Let me, I'll go over it with you. Well, I, very good. You're sure, very, okay, good. And that, that's what I'm going to get at today. Very good. And so let me go over that creed with you a little bit. Uh, starts off, uh, the first is most important to me, adherence to the free market system. Because that one really uh, draws a, a red line, right? And people uh, in business or whatever, even students of economics, sometimes don't understand what that means, right? Adherence to the free market system. All of human history up till 1800 made how many dollars a year per person? $500 about, right? Basically subsistence level for the entire world for all of human history. And something changed at about 1800. And what was that? Adam Smith. We, yeah, good, very good. Adam Smith, if you want to put a name to it, right? So Adam Smith, 1776, and that was in the works, right? I mean, the, the, the history of ideas for 100, 200 years prior but societies finally had to choose the free market system. 
there's always been markets, right? You can go back to the ancient Greeks and Romans where they were trading chickens and cows and whatever, right? So we've always had markets. There's always been spice trade and this trade and the other trade. So it's a very different thing doing business, right, or economics or whatever is very different from choosing socially, your society choosing to have and run your society by the free market system. That's the big deal. And that kind of came uh, hand in hand with other fundamental shifts that had to be in place ahead of time, right? You had to choose the rule of law, private property rights, the liberty tradition, you know, coming out of John Locke all the way through. And then in my district, I forgot to mention, right, I, I am fortunate enough to come from a district uh, that is framed by Patrick Henry down in the Richmond area, going all the way up to the northwest, James Madison in my district. Right, so those are some names that go along with that liberty tradition. And all of this fits uh, more broadly within the Judeo-Christian tradition. Right, That long swath, I have a lot of libertarian friends. We always get into fun exchanges. And I say, well, it's nice of you guys to come along at about 1900 with this liberty idea. Right, uh, For the past centuries, we've been fighting off the Huns and the Visigoths and all this kind of thing. And you guys come along lately. Right, So I appreciate everything they're doing. I have a lot of good libertarian friends. Uh, but there was some heavy lifting that came for 2,000 years uh, to set that up. And I think the Heritage Foundation is, is aware of that long tradition. And so all of that kind of goes together into a, a, a narrative that's hard to describe in a soundbite. And so when you're running for office, right, I'm just on point one, by the way, right? You can see how long this talk's going to go. <laughs> this is point one in the Virginia Creed, adherence to the free market system. But I'm trying to show you what goes into that biographically and theoretically, et cetera, to show you how complex it is. So then when the press asks you a question about some simple bill that has to do with free markets, it's very hard to put all that into an answer, right? And so that's the hard part. But I gave, you know, 15 to 20 minute, I call them economic homilies, basically, was my stump speech night after night after night for 10 months trying to explain this. And I, I'll just, I'll close this little part. Uh, by saying, this is the good news, right? The, the Republicans, the conservatives have the strongest, best moral message to deliver to the entire country right now. Uh, what's happened in the last 20 years since I started teaching at Randolph-Macon? Uh, when, when I started teaching 20 years ago, the Chinese and the Indians were making roughly $500 to $1,000 per capita 20 years ago. Uh, what's happened? What radical choice has been made in the last 20 years that's made all the difference for global poverty reduction and improvement in people's lives. Uh, and what is it? The Chinese and the Indians have chosen the free market system, right? And the irony of ironies is while they're choosing the free market system, the United States of America is choosing to backtrack, right? We're clogging the arteries at every turn. Obamacare, regulatory overreaches of one and a half trillion dollars, et cetera, right? We can go over that over and over and over. And so that's good news, right? The, the, the public policy choice of choosing the free market system, uh, the human welfare gains there, right? In economic terms, you have these little Harberger efficiency triangles or whatever. Uh, that choice to choose the free market system dwarfs all of the other public policy decisions globally by 10 times over, right? The welfare gains. And our side has a hard time explaining this to the average voter, to the average American, to the average global citizen, that this system is good for humanity, period, right? And I went to seminary, so I believe seven to eight billion people on this planet are all children of God. 
I try to make that very clear, especially when you start getting into immigration arguments and all those, those can get a little testy. Uh, but the basic framework and the basic logic is there right from the beginning. And I want what's best for the entire world, right? All of God's children, Christmas is coming up, Merry Christmas to all of you in advance. Uh, but that's what I tried to do. And so that's what I tried to set out. There's number one. I'm going to go through the rest of the creed real quick. Uh, second is uh, equal treatment under the law. Everyone's equal under the law. Third principle is fiscal responsibility at all levels of government, federal, state, local. Fourth, adherence to the Constitution. I just had a tough few days uh, trying to stay true and vote on that, right? Adherence to the Constitution, the, the presidential overreach on amnesty, executive amnesty. Uh, that wasn't just a simple public policy choice, right? Uh, at the margin about, you know, dollars and cents and uh, policy differences. Uh, the reason that was such a big deal to me is because of this fourth point in the Republican creed, right? Adherence to the Constitution and to constitutional principles. I think that uh, end run violated constitutional principles. And so that's why I stuck uh, very firm to the votes on, on that uh, issue over the last couple of days. Uh, fifth, peace is best preserved through a strong national defense. Ronald Reagan's on the walls out here, so I know you all get that one. And sixth, uh, finally, a lot of times not mentioned in public policy circles, faith in God is recognized by our founders, absolutely essential to a strong moral fiber. Uh, that's a big deal. Uh, all the presidents I've been reading since, you know, everyone's sending me books, carts of books on prayers of the presidents, all these kind of things. You go back and you read the basic books, the basic speeches of the founding generation, the great people we all revere in this room, and they, they, they were not ashamed or bashful about it. Uh, and they didn't wear it on their sleeve also, though. They weren't pushing it on people, right? There's a separation of church and state, no establishing a church. But part B of that is absolute free expression of your faith as part of the freedoms uh, baked into our Constitution and the First Amendment. And so a lot of people were very much attracted to that. And that uh, kind of frames the ec economics and the ethics. And so just in a nutshell also, some of the biggest problems we have in the country under bullet point three, fiscal responsibility, the debt on the debt clock is $18 trillion. If you go to the bottom of that debt clock, there's a bigger number. The unfunded liabilities are $127 trillion. Dollars, right? Those are the big four programs. Uh, Medicare, Social Security, et cetera, are all insolvent by about 2032 or so, right? So to preserve those programs for seniors, much less the next generation, and I see a bunch of you sitting out here, right? We better get on it. And I don't know if it's really that technically uh, a difficult economic problem we need to solve, or it's more ethical, right? Just having the political will to solve those problems. And it seems to me it's the later, right? It's the political will to engage in those very tough conversations on those entitlement programs. Uh, and so those are the principles I ran on. I made a few pledges as well to meet with my constituents once a month and people from every county uh, to term limit myself to 12 years. Uh, and I pledged to put in a fair or a flat tax. And so uh, a few specific pledges as well. That's the basic uh, framework that I ran on. And so over the past month, I've tried to vote along with those principles. The press always has, you know, they don't quite believe me that I, <laughs> they, they say, how, how are you going to vote on this? Are you going to vote? I said, well, I, I laid it out very clearly. I believe in these six principles in the Republican creed, and I made a few pledges, and I'm going to vote on those principles. And so I'm, that's really what I'm going to try to do. 
And so, and the people back home will, will keep me honest, I think, and help me to do that. Uh, how, much, how am I doing on time? Fine. Keep going if you like. Yeah? You with me for a few more minutes? All right, so that's who I am, and there's the race. Those are the principles I ran on. And then uh, this week, uh, voting and being up here, I'll just kind of, I've been only here for a month. I got sworn in, right? I, once you get that thing, you, you know you're in. So I was up here with 50 of the rookies, the congressmen and women in my uh, entering class. And so we got to know each other, and that was a great experience. And the press says, what's the most unexpected part of being up here? And I think it's just been the warmth and uh, graciousness of, of the other members, right? The freshman group, uh, Democrats, Republicans were together. So the first two weeks, we all had events every night. And uh, on some of the issues, you know, constitutional issues, public policy, how does Congress work and all that kind of thing, that was great. And then the senior members of Congress also uh, – when you have to go up, and I'm just like you, right? I'm a regular citizen. A picture going up to the podium and looking out at the entire Congress that you see on TV every day and having to give a speech right after they swear you in, right? Put yourself in those shoes. And so my entire Virginia delegation came behind me uh, and was very gracious to me. And then the rest of the uh, senior members made me feel very welcome. And so that truly was uh, unexpected and uh, the, how I was received. And so I'm very thankful, uh, and uh, I'll just kind of leave it at that. And then, while I was orienting, right, I, my uh, predecessor stepped down early and was, that was a gracious move on his part. And so I got to start off not only going through freshman orientation, but also serving as a member of Congress. And so that was a lot to learn quick, right? Setting up offices, staffing up, and all that kind of thing. You go from the campaign side to the general side. And so we had to do all of that. And uh, then I had tough votes. And so the tax extender vote came up. That was a tough one. Uh, you're faced with a choice, right? I, I wasn't in on the framing of the whole piece. And so you got a tough choice. Put yourself in a member's shoes. Uh, if you don't vote for it, taxes go up on all my constituents. If you do vote for it, 20% of it was wind, right? Conservatives don't like uh, picking winners and losers, and a lot of people back in my district don't like that, and I don't like it, right? So there's a tough vote. So I voted for that package because overall the net uh, I thought was positive. And then the defense authorization bill came up. That had a bunch of land grant in it. I think Senator Coburn, you saw in the news on that, and it had some other pork and politics pieces in that, too much in my judgment. And the greatest, greater issue there was I don't want our defense authorization bill cluttered with other pieces because eventually that if you follow that principle, right, that you can clutter that defense authorization with this, that, and the other thing, that's eventually going to hold our defense uh, funding hostage in some way, shape, or form. You know it's coming, right? So on principle, I tried to separate that one. And then on the omnibus, we all were kind of pushing for a short-term CR so that our Senate on the Republican side could be in, in a in a better bargaining position coming up in January or February, and that didn't happen. The Omni went through, and we, a, a group of 75 members, uh, tried to put an amendment on that uh, omnibus bill to, uh, to restrict the president's overreach on the, on the executive amnesty. And so we went to rules, and rules had made a, already a, a kind of a stated position that they weren't going to accept any amendments 
And so, you know, I, I was disappointed in that process when you're a new member, uh, not having the chance at all, right? A 1,600-page bill comes up. Uh, you have to read it in a day or two. Uh, you find out it didn't deal with fundamental things you ran on, so you try to do an amendment, and then the amendment piece is closed off because everything's so uh, shortened in the time frame. you got one day left, and we're going to vote on it. And so uh, that amendment went down. And so because that, the rules didn't allow that, the next day I voted no on the rule uh, for the bill as well as voting no for the bill itself. Uh, primarily on that constitutional is issue, there were plenty of other policy uh, issues. I differed there, uh, but the overriding logic was, uh, was linked to the unconstitutional part of the executive overreach. Uh, and so from there, uh, and I'll close it out and be happy to take questions uh, from all of you. But uh, if you're interested in following me, obviously, uh, and, the, and the people in my district, go to DaveBratt.com and share ideas with us. Uh, and I'm going to try to put out, you know, economic papers, white papers, weekly that summarize my voting positions, maybe daily if we can do that. My chief is over here, so I offer them work by the wheelbarrow full by the day, right? I say, here, go do this, go, and we'll, we'll see what we can do. But we would obviously love to do that, right, and share our economic logic, because that's kind of the important part, uh, where your voters understand how are you voting, right? What, what's the logic behind your vote? And then I am the only economist in the House, and so I would love to be able to start doing some economic education my stump speech for 10 months, I would ask audience after audience, right, 50 to 100 people every night, have you ever heard the number $127 trillion? And the answer was no. No idea. So if that's the country's biggest issue, which I think it is, numerically it clearly is, right? There's no bigger, I taught public finance, and that's in the book. I don't want to tell you the name of the professor who wrote that book. Any guesses? See if you're an educated Gruber. Whoops. So $127 trillion, right? And no one knows that number. That's a problem. And what's the problem? It's an education problem, right? Uh, our country does not know that that number is coming due, and that's just the unfunded piece of the liabilities. That's not the cost of the programs, right? That's just the unfunded liabilities that we promised in law, and that's, you know, two-thirds of the budget, the non-discretionary part that you can't touch unless you change the law. And that two-thirds is growing, and so you're left with one-third that includes the military, and the military's being pinched, and everything's being pinched. And I think you all in this room know the state-level governments are being pinched, and then that trickles down to the local levels are being pinched. And that's the context. And in that context, everybody knows the bottom line is uh, there's no money uh, that's going to be falling from the clouds anytime soon. It's, done, it's game over, right? So now we are going to be in an era of scarcity uh, for the next 10 or 20 years. How do you know that? Because what's the GDP, GDP growth rate uh, for the United States right now? 2% subpar. And our productivity levels, Wall Street Journal just had the last five years of U.S. productivity, is also way subpar. And your economy is roughly your education level times your, the number of people you have, right, is your productivity. And how's that looking? How are we doing in education compared with the Chinese and the Indians and, on engineers and STEM fields and all that kind of thing? Not so hot. So our economic growth 
forecast uh, for the next 10 or 20 years is not bright either. So we need to turn all that around. I think we can do that. I'm an optimist. you got Reagan on the wall out there. I like him. Right? He was always optimist. And he had tough, tough economic times when he came in. So it can be done. And I think I better end there while I'm on a positive note, right? So that's a little optimism. It can be done. I didn't say how. That's the next talk. Have me back and we'll get at it. But thank you very much for having me today. It's an honor to be here. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. We, uh, we have time for a few questions. Uh, we have uh, Laurel Conrad here, who Good. just graduated from Cornell. Oh, congratulations. She's the new lecture director at Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute. Right. And uh, this is a heritage intern. Sorry. Good. <laughs> if you would give your name and affiliation, because we're on C-SPAN and we want everybody to hear your question. Wait for the mic. Yes, ma'am. And we'll get you a mic. Thank you. I'm Barbara Bowie Whitman. And as an economist who is a Republican, because I believe in individual liberty and free market principles, yep. I'm glad to hear you. Now, I have a couple of questions, really, and I'm going to cheat and sneak them in. First one is procedure going forward, but the other part is from la left over from last night. The procedure going forward has to do with can we get a good, solid economist who believes in the right things to head the CBO and do dynamic scoring. Second question is from last night. I got an email from Ken Cuccinelli saying that you were the only Republican from Virginia who had voted right. And it stated that there was no way we could fix what happened last night because of this rule because it would allow the president, it, the president going forward to do exactly what he wanted already with the amnesty provisions. There's got to be a way to fix it, even though it sounds horrible. And in politics, we always, when we're trying to get people excited, say that the worst has already happened. How do we get out of what happened last night? Yep, good. So I'll start with number one. Yes is the short answer on to getting a, a good economist going with some dynamic scoring and all that. And that'll help a little bit, but that doesn't get you to the $127 trillion. So I won't get too optimistic on that. But, yeah, we'll, we'll do better on that. I'm trying to get on the Joint Economic Committee as well so that – you know, we can work in tandem on some of those issues. And then on, uh, on, the, on Ken's email, I saw that. And I, I will just put the whole omnibus uh, piece in a broader context so you understand, right? So I'm, I just came up here. I wasn't involved in the process going through. So for sitting members, it's harder because they're on certain committees and they have certain pieces in that omnibus that they're shepherding through and they believe in, right? I, I came in, in some ways, on easier ground that way. I, I ran on constitutional principles, stood my ground on them, and that's that. And so the other members, uh, for example, uh, Chairman Goodlatte and Judiciary has plans uh, legislatively to take on uh, the overreach within his jurisdiction, right, in Judiciary. And so uh, that's taking place. Other members I know have strong concerns on that. Uh, but the broader context... Uh, was the omnibus was not our chosen method uh, on the Republican side, right? Uh, the failure, and, and we discussed this at length in the Rules Committee. We were in there for about four hours in a row uh, on Wednesday evening. And the failure came on the Senate side in, uh, on the, uh, in the Democrat chamber. They would not take up any appropriations bills, right? They just wouldn't take them up. And so that failure of working through the normal process, right, regular order, failed, uh, not due to us 
uh, Paul Ryan over the past years has always put in a budget. Uh, the Democrat Senate has not. And so everyone says, Dave, are you going to go up there and work across the aisle and compromise and all this kind of thing? <laughs> well, uh, I'm not against compromise. I'm all for compromise, right? Comp we have to compromise $127 trillion down. <laughs> we have to compromise on how do you reduce the debt $18 trillion down. And so I'm not making excuses for anyone, but we were put in a very hard spot on how those appropriations bills were going to be put together. So we were forced into this omnibus package. And there, there's a lot of moving pieces. And I, I don't pretend as the rookie up here to know all of that. And so uh, I, I know the members uh, from Virginia. They're all of fine character. And I think we're going to do the right thing. And our, the, the, the Rules Committee and uh, the Speaker did promise uh, that they will address the issue early in January and that the Mulvaney Amendment would be attached to the defense piece going forward. Right? So it was a matter of, of a, a lot of moving pieces. I, I said no just on the constitutional piece, that if you know something is illegal, I don't want to move forward at all. You say what the Mulvaney right. Amendment is yeah. for those who don't know. Right. Uh, so the Mulvaney Amendment was 75 of us on the Republican side put an amendment in uh, that would stop uh, specifically all of the presidential uh, pieces in the uh, – in the uh, in the military bill on homeland security, right? So we stripped all all of his the the executive overreach had you know ten or twelve pieces to it. So we defunded all twelve of those pieces specifically. But on the amnesty part, where where does the defunding of yeah. the executive order on amnesty come? Well, and that's in there, right? Any any that's what it was defunding okay. the amnesty. Any of the administrative pieces, any of the the, the Social Security card funding, any of the the administration underneath there, we defunded. Who else is going? Yes, ma'am. Um, wait wait for the mic, please. Whoops, sorry, my. Uh, my name is Gabby Morangello, and I'm an intern with the Heritage Foundation. Great. Um, I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on are on including. Um, something against Obama's executive action on immigration in the current lawsuit that the House filed against President Obama? Well, yeah, I, I'm not an expert. I'm, not, I'm an economist, so I'm not a lawyer. So that's, that's my <laughs> pre-remark. And so that's where uh, our other members in the Virginia delegation will come in on that piece. But I'm in favor of right, moving across on all fronts, right? The, the, the legislative piece, the funding piece, the judicial piece the judiciary piece, and so I don't have too much in the way of specifics to offer you on that other than to say I want to do all of the above because you don't know the timing on it, you know, which piece is going to be most effective. But already, right, you know in Virginia I think there's a 1,000 federal positions already funded uh, and in place, and they're already getting the green cards going and all, right, the Social Security cards are already in process, and that's the downside to the omnibus uh, funding the government even through the end of February, right, I think the Obama executive action had a kind of a 50-day limit on it, and we go beyond that. So at the end of that 50 days, everything can be executed, and that's why I'm concerned, and that's why I voted no. I wanted some solution prior to that 50-day cutoff. And, and the, legis the, the piece you're talking about, the lawsuit will probably take longer than that by the time it works its way through. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. My name's Frida Hugley. 
In the new Congress coming up, do you see the Republicans working with the President Obama or President Obama working with the Republicans? I don't know if I want to pick a direction, but I'll just say I, I hope we do work together on the big pieces, right? And I think it is important in economics. You're, how many of you had an economics class? Anyway, right? You're supposed to rank your preferences in order. And the goal is, you know, happiness, maximization, whatever, right? So I'll just say, if, if you're thinking economically, you need to put the biggest pieces, the most important pieces in rank order and go down those in order, right? And so I, President Obama, uh, the Republican side, I don't think there's any way to deny the $127 trillion number. Everybody knows that's number one, right? And then the debt piece, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said when asked, what's the greatest threat to our military? He said the U.S. debt, right? And so people of goodwill on both sides, there are ways to solve these problems, and we have to do it. And the third issue I would put in there that I think the Democrats and Republicans can clearly work on jointly is education. I, right, I'm hoping to be on the education committee. Uh, that's a bipartisan issue. It's clear we're not succeeding, right? The U.S. now on test scores, international test scores, is, you know, underneath the median score, right? We're toward the bottom. Of, in the industrialized world, we're toward the bottom on math and science test scores. And there's no way our kids can compete in this global economy uh, with that type of operation, right? And that doesn't even begin to talk about the fact that our kids don't know what a business is, right? We're kind of in the medieval, right, post-World War II uh, manufacturing kind of worldview instead of being in this dynamic global economy worldview. And it, it, things have to change radically, not just a little bit, right? We have a monopoly in K-12 education still. The kids are not being trained. They don't know what a business is. They don't know what an entrepreneur is, right? So they're learning all the math and science and this kind of thing. Uh, but if you're not taught what business is, we have a major problem on our hands. And so businesses are complaining about the workforce skills development. We can do something about that, right? There, we have projects in our area where the, the, the business folks are coming into the schools at the 7th and 8th grade level and helping to shape the curriculum to skill the kids in to work for those companies. And I, I think that's a model we have to look at. And I think that it'll work. And, and it doesn't cost any money, believe it or not, right? That's, that's a nice model. So you skill up kids to work for the company in your own area. The 40% of college kids, I think, today can't find a job in their own area that they majored in, 40%. So that, that's, a, that's a big deal. And I didn't get into the amnesty issue, but that's why that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm pretty tough on that issue. I don't want any more short-run Band-Aid solutions, right? So when you have a labor force problem and our economy is not back to, you know, normal steady-state growth by any means, and the worst part of the economy is the labor market. So how do you solve that? We need to skill up our own kids, right, and get our economy moving again. The, the answer is not to ignore the real problem we have and to import 10 million new folks from abroad. And that's not an answer for any country, right? We clearly cannot hold 8 billion people. So people always want to talk about this 5 million or 10 million, like that's, the pro that's not the problem, right? The problem is we need free markets for 8, 8 billion people on the planet to get the whole world growing. That's what we did after the war, right, with the Japanese and the Germans, our arch enemies, right? We propped them up with a Marshall Plan. 
we learned from World War I how not to do it. And now they're our friends, right? So we turned arch enemies into our friends. That's our goal. That's what we have to do. And so immigration, in my mind, kind of stands for that short-run Band-Aid approach where business just looks for short-term earnings. Uh, and that logic is putting our country in a terrible hole right now, right? That short-run mentality. We need to get back to long-run planning. And I used to put in my stump speech, right, the CEOs uh, in the country right after World War II was kind of as General Motors goes, so the nation goes, right? That was the logic. The CEOs knew they were at least implicitly involved in charting GDP growth for the nation. And they, they had a social and ethical responsibility to do that. These days, the language is changing. We can make earnings, profits within any environment, right? We can go global. We can make our money over there. We can make money over here, right? So individually, corporately, they do okay, but the, it's not tied back to the U.S. GDP growth rate, right, and the welfare of the country as a whole. We have to all get back to thinking about that. Congressman, That's a long-winded. Sorry about that one. That's okay. Maybe I'll ask the last question, and then we can Good. talk informally during sure. lunch. In most of uh, colleges and universities, yep. and we have some students here who could attest, most of the professors are liberal and left-wing, uh, with some wonderful exceptions, of course. Yep. I was curious the reaction of your fellow professors at your college when a freedom-oriented, <laughs> liberty-talking uh, professor like you was elected to Congress. What did they all say? I can't say that on live TV. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. <laughs> that, I'll just put it that way. Uh, they're all right. They're collegial, right? At lunch, we used to debate all the time, and so we had fun. And then the, the left gets more mad at you the more effective you get. And so when I got this effective, they weren't happy with it. And so, right, and, and, and I challenge my liberals, right? If you all want to have fun with liberals someday, I mean, it's a fun thing to do. I enjoy them, right? I mean, I'm, I get along. Go to the lunch table and ask them where the word liberal comes from. Any guesses from any scholars in liberty, right? Right? So the liberal tradition of which they're a part, and then if you want to go deeper, right, get into the what ethics uh, will you name, right? What ethics are you teaching to the kids, right? There's no such thing as ethics. Everybody with me on that? There's Jewish ethics, Buddhist ethics, Confucius ethics, Christian ethics, Kantian ethics, utilitarian ethics, right? Ethics, it has to be an ethical system, a frame of thought. And it's, it's almost criminal, right, that kids coming out of K-12 system have no idea what ethics is at all, no awareness of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And I'm not particular in, in pushing one tradition on others, but that's what a liberal education is, is being open-minded to all the various systems of thought, right? And I, I teach a justice course at the school, which starts with Socrates and then Plato and then Aristotle, et cetera and goes up through John Rawls and Milton Friedman and all sorts of folks in the modern period, right? That's a liberal arts education. Most kids coming out of school are not familiar at all with that tradition, out, out graduating from college. And so I'll just kind of leave it there on that one, right? So we need, to, we need to reinvigorate our university. Some of the best universities, by the way, have no curriculum whatsoever, right? Kids at 18 years old, I, I guess, are so wise they can choose their, their life plans ahead of time. Right? So I'm, I'm a conservative. I don't really buy that theory of education. <laughs> well, we 
want to give you a couple of gifts to thank you, oh, well, thank for you coming much. by. We're sure glad you're up there on Capitol Hill talking about liberty. Great. Well, thank you so much. Representing all of us. At the Claire Booth Lewis Policy Institute, what we do is we promote conservative women who believe as you do. Good. And this is our uh, 2015 calendar uh, with some of the great <laughs> women <laughs> who've spoken for us in the past year. And we also have a mug. This is, you're going to appreciate this. This is a famous saying from Claire Booth Luce. Read it. No good deed goes unpunished. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And then, Thank you very much. Yes. yes. Go ahead. And we good. also, from the Heritage Foundation, yep. you'll love this gift. It should be right on your desk as good. opposed to way over on a bookshelf. It's the Heritage Guide to the Constitution. Oh, very good. Oh. There you go. Good. Let me show everybody that one. Uh-oh, it's heavy. <laughs> All right, more light reading this evening. Thank you all very much for having me. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, oh, thank you so much.